Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Werman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is Thursday, May the 2nd. We are excited to have you joining us again today. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Joining us in just a few minutes is Levy Bird. Levy, this is his birthday today. So out there on on the Twitterverse, social media, maybe you got his phone number. Send him a text message. Tell him happy birthday. Let him know that uh, you know today is his birthday. Um, we it, we are. Uh, we are really, really excited to have him on. He he has been coaching, but but prior to coaching, or even at the same time as coaching several years ago, he was writing and uh, writing for Sports Illustrated. And there's probably quite a few of you who, like uh, myself, that came into to contact with him, got to know his name through his writing. And so we touch on that uh, for a second, but... Um, I think I think that we can um I think we're gonna spend most of the of the conversation looking at kind of coaching and things like that, but it's always interesting to try to get his perspective on on the game and so we look forward to having him on and we're gonna ask all kinds of questions. So uh stay tuned for that. That's coming up here in just uh, a few minutes. Meanwhile, yesterday uh, an alien was sighted yet again in the city of Barcelona in Spain. My goodness. Wow. Um, as a as a Barcelona supporter, and and I'll have to say, you know, for the for the audience, I these two teams are my two favorite teams in the world, but Barcelona has my heart. They're always my number one. Um, but I, I really, really root for Liverpool in the Premier League. If you know, if, if Barcelona wasn't around in in this uh, competition, I would certainly be. Uh, you never walk alone again, as loud as I could with the rest of you. But uh, when these two teams play, which is very rare, but when they do play, uh, my heart is is with Barca. And, and watching that game yesterday, you know, it's hard because you, you like both teams, you follow both of these teams, and you're, you're, you want to see a good match. And I, I felt like at times it was, a, it was a good match. It certainly was a lot of drama. There was a, a, a lot of physical play. The, the referee was allowing the, the play to, to get a little bit more physical than, than I'm used to seeing, especially uh, from Barcelona. They're typically not, um, you know, as physical as they were yesterday. Typically, they're, they're using the ball and moving it around, but you, you saw several players, you know, making some consistent tactical fouls, uh, breaking up flow, and you saw this from both sides. This wasn't just a Barcelona thing. It wasn't just a Liverpool thing. But I, I, I found that to be interesting because both teams came in looking to to create kind of a physical edge for um, for their for themselves against their opponent, and and it went back and forth. 
If you missed the match, shame on you. If you, if you DVR'd it and haven't watched it yet, it's still worth the watch. The score line is deceiving. It was three to zero, but that was that was an even match. Um, what it really came down to is is Liverpool did not take their chances. They had several chances. They could not. They could could have not only have drawn the game 3-3, if you go back and look at their opportunities, if they were more uh, clinical in front of goal and, and converted their chances, they, they could have actually won that match uh, on the road at the Camp Nou. So it was not a situation where Liverpool were overwhelmed or where, where Liverpool had a bad game. In fact, you know, the especially the, the the first part of the second half, Barcelona couldn't keep the ball. They were chasing the ball around the field. They couldn't get the ball. They couldn't keep the ball. And when they got the ball, they lost the ball. I mean, Liverpool were giving them all kinds of problems, and it was still only a, a 1-0 lead at this point for Barcelona. So, you know, it, it wasn't a situation where you look at the scoreline at the end, you miss the game, and you think, oh, Barcelona just beat Liverpool down. They didn't. It was a It was an evenly matched game. And, and like I said, you could easily make the argument that Liverpool could have, could have tied that game or won that game if they would have converted their chances. On the opposite side, I was actually a little disappointed in, in Barcelona and their play. I didn't feel like the, that the, the substitutions that, that were brought in to, to be starters for, the, for this game to kind of bring some of that physical aspect, I felt like it kind of broke up a little bit of the rhythm um, you know, I, I got from Coutinho what I expected to get from Coutinho, which was not, not a lot. Um, you know, he's a, he's a one trick pony and, and, um, you know, Liverpool know that one trick pony really well. And, and so I felt like he was completely neutralized at times. He would try to do some things and, and do too much rather than just play simple and, and connect the ball and, and would cough it up. Um, I was really, really hoping to see Dembele play from the start and then Dembele comes in, and wow. Um, I don't know how to describe what happened at the final whistle if you, if you missed it. Um, just go back and watch, and, and you might pull your hair out. Um, you, you, you don't get a better opportunity to score than that. And, um, you know, he did all that work, makes the pass, and gets it back from Messi, and then just one touch roll to the keeper wow it was um it, it was tough and and so you know maybe maybe the smart choice wasn't to start him after all but um i was really hoping that he would be in there because I, I felt like he would bring a different dynamic so i'm hoping maybe next week um he gets to start from the top because he would he would definitely bring an element uh, of speed down the wing uh, on either side that he was at. And I think that would give Liverpool some more problems where Coutinho is, is just not fast enough to do that. And so he relies on his skill and in, in, in terms of being able to control the ball, etc. But too often his skill is, it doesn't match the moment. So he, he'll either play too complicated when he needs to play simple or, uh, when the team needs him to do something, he's it just always seems like he's kind of out of rhythm. I don't know. So, um, you know, Barcelona kind of won despite the way that they were playing. They didn't get a lot of chances, but the chances they got, they 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 finished. Suarez, um, he he uh, he scores. And if you're a Liverpool fan and, and supporter, I'm curious to see and hear your reaction because. Man, he scores, goes into a knee slide, fist pump, and and I was I was a little surprised at that reaction. Um, I know he was excited, but I was just a little surprised that that he did that, especially knowing he's got to go to Anfield next next uh, next match. So we'll see how Anfield um, treats him by the way he celebrated that goal instead of kind of being, you know, more respectful going to the corner. Although I'm not a massive fan of that. Um, I'm fine going to the corner and, and, and celebrating with your teammates, but this, this whole idea that you can't celebrate that you scored is, is a little crazy, but, 
I definitely think there's a way to do it in a respectful way, in a way where you could uh, aggravate, let's just say, some of the uh, the supporters from your old club. And, and I'll be curious to see how the fans and the supporters and the stands, the players treat him next week when he comes back to Anfield because – that was a surprise. And then, uh, you know, he had a chance to put in a second, hits the crossbar, and, who you know, who would have guessed, Messi following the play. This is something I talk to, to my, my two boys about all the time. Messi scores goals, and he scores incredible goals, but you don't score 600 goals unless you are routinely putting yourself in a position to score. It is critical to be able to get to that level uh, that volume of scoring you have to be in the right position it's not just scoring the wonder goal and and he and he did that for for his second goal of the match it was a wonder goal it was amazing for most players that would be the highlight goal of their career for him it's just another match Uh, He scored so many like that, but it's just still, every time he does it, it's incredible. And and to me, that's one of the things about him that makes him the greatest is that it's the consistency at, at the level of which he performs. Ronaldo has never performed consistently at that level, producing what he has produced, what Messi has produced at that level with, 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 with the longevity of his career. I'm sorry, it hasn't happened. It is not to say that Ronaldo's not an incredible talent, an incredible player, but but they those two do not belong in the same sentence when you're talking about the greatest. It's not even close. But back to the point. The point that I was noticing with with Messi on that second goal is a point I make often to to my sons and that is be in the right place. Follow the play. Always make sure that your brain is active, that you are paying attention to the moment. It's real easy to get caught up in in watching the play or thinking that somebody else is, is in the better position or et cetera, et cetera. Messi's always tracking the play. He's not always running. Half the time, you know, he's walking, but he's tracking the play. And there's no smarter player, despite what, what, some U.S. soccer scouts have said about him in the past. There is no smarter player on the planet than Messi. He sees the game at a different level, and he processes each nanosecond of the game at such a high level that no one else is able has been able to do. And and I'm not saying that that no one will ever be able to do because if if he's done it, that means that somebody else could figure out how to be that good as well. But I I I don't see anyone right now currently playing at the top level of the game anywhere near this guy. And and he is just continuing time after time after time to execute and and do it consistently and at a level that is just incredible to watch and so um you know it, it it's it's been a it's been a it was a pleasure to watch yesterday it really was to watch to watch him play um to watch uh, the 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 two teams go back and forth they they were definitely both playing like two titans going after each other unfortunately for liverpool they did not convert their chances. Salah hit the post. Milner missed two chances that he he should have, uh, you know, put away. To be honest, uh, in those moments, you, you've got a real real chance to, to to put both of those away. And and Mane had had a chance in the first half to tie it up uh, at one one, and 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 you know poked it uh, over the crossbar by I don't know ten fifteen yards. I mean it was it was nowhere close. So, you know, there were there were chances and and I really felt like Liverpool actually had more chances than Barcelona watching that match, but at the end of the day, you've got to convert your opportunities. You have to take advantage when you get in that moment and that's what separates the 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 really good from the greats and in the case of Messi the greats and the greatest of all time. So, um it was it was really really fun. I look forward to the return leg. Um, hoping this weekend for Liverpool's sake, having Barcelona already wrapped up La Liga yet again, um, I, I'm really hoping that Leicester uh, City um, decides to play the match of the season 
and um, cause Man City all kinds of problems and at least figures out a way to steal a point against Man City, giving Liverpool a chance to win the Premier League title. Um, and, and I would not say that this Champions League match is over by any stretch of the imagination. I think Liverpool is going to... They're going to come, and and they're going to you know, come for Barcelona. I don't think they're going to be able to overturn the 3-0, but I do think that they're going to at least attempt to bring the heat. I don't think they're going to walk away from this thinking, man, we've got no shot. I think they're going to look at the way they played and feel – you know, pretty good about the way they played at the Camp Nou and um, and feel like, man, if we just converted some chances, this would already be a better match going back to Enfield. So let's take advantage of what we can do at home. And, you know, three goals is not impossible. I do, I do, don't, I do think that they are obviously facing an uphill battle and, and really think, you know, Barcelona is going to be up for the task and, and to see them off. But, um, you know, I, I I definitely think the spirit of the Liverpool players is going to be one where they are really, um, you know, looking forward to to getting back out on the field again, and um, you know, and 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 having an opportunity to um, you know to to basically get revenge and tie this thing up and try to try to work their way to the final where. Um, I think the rest of the world is is like me, rooting and hoping uh, that Ajax um, is is there waiting on the winner of Barcelona Liverpool, um, and and with it looking like Barcelona is going to win, um, in Ajax if they pull it off. I mean, we're, look, we're going to have a, a, a Croy final. I mean, uh, that would be pretty cool, and uh, and so we. Those of us who just, you know, who love the game and, and obviously as Barcelona fans and those of you who are Ajax supporters, um, it could be a really, really cool, uh, really cool match coming up here in a few weeks. So anyway, the uh, the sponsor for today's show is Charity Water. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world and they are changing lives one village at a time. And that is opening opening up all kinds of opportunities for them to change their lives through education and in other ways. So if you haven't checked them out yet, check them out at charitywater.org. We will be right back in just a moment. <laughs> तर अहिले को बच्चा अलग मिले शुद्ध हरी अथवा उन्हें अलग क्लास में गए रहते हैं कि बंदी मेरा बंदा हरी उन्हें एक बच्चा अलग एक क्लास दो क्लास तीन तीन क्लास का बच्चा अलग उन्हें अलग सहारे रुपए चाहिए जब कोई तो वर्कशॉप से माटी चार पांच Welcome back to the show. We are delighted to have joining us 
Levy Bird. Levy, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. So, um, you're joining us here. It's Thursday, May the second, and it's your birthday. Happy Happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you very much. Not sure it's uh, much to celebrate, you know, as you get older, but it's um, yeah, still nice. <laughs> well, uh, any any big plans for your birthday? No, not really. I'm just um, coaching tonight. Um, our second training session of the season for the the Sounders U23. So we're we're off and running, and it's you know, it's, uh, honestly, there's no place I'd rather be than than on a on a football field on my birthday. So it was the same last year, um, kicking off the season with the Kitsap Pumas at this time. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm lucky. It's it's enough of a present for me. So one of the big questions that's often thrown around on social media when it when referring to you is where did he go did he disappear was he assassinated by Sunil Galati like he was rioting and then he disappeared ultimately what did it come down for you when you're you've been coaching these last few years not necessarily riding anymore what 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 was that choice like for you what was the decision for you between journalism covering the sport versus coaching yeah, it's it's fun. I'm actually back on Twitter now. I'm taking a bit of a break this summer just because I'm I've got a really busy summer with the teams I'm coaching, and I'm taking uh, the USSFB license, and I'm starting my UEFA A as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it's it's funny. I was I was always coaching, uh, even when I was writing. It was for a long time I was writing, and, and you know, it's not not a huge money thing. So um, I was coaching. And that's how I was really making more money. And that's just not as high a profile when you're coaching kids and, and youth soccer at, at the lower level. So, I mean, that's, um, I've always been coaching, really. Um, it came down to uh, the point where I was basically doing both jobs full time. Uh, I was I was coaching a couple of youth teams. I was with the Pumas at the time. And um, and I was also writing for Sports Illustrated. And, and you know, I was working two full time jobs. And it was honestly, it was killing me. So, I had to make kind of put myself in a position where I, I made a decision what, which one I wanted to do. And, and for me, it, there was no contest. I, I've always enjoyed being on the field. And um, I, I've always, always would rather be on, on, on the pitch than, than in the press box. So that's, that's what it came down to for me. So take us back to earlier in your life. At what point did you just fall in love with the game so much so that you were wanting to you know have your your entire you know professional career whether it was journalism whether it was coaching itself involved with a game of football the game of soccer yeah I, it's funny people people always ask the you know the question when when as, as if there was one point in time and for some people there is that one point in time but for me uh, I, I've always been around the game my my mom's from Romania, so that's where my my name comes from. And I, I grew up playing. I learned to play the game uh, in the the kind of the courtyard behind her parents, my grandparents' apartment building there, playing with the neighborhood kids, and um, quite often playing with guys who were much older than me, and and you know getting kicked around a bit. Um, but that was really where it started. My my mom's uncle played professionally in Romania, and I've, I always knew that. And, you know, his jersey number was my first jersey number when I started playing recreationally and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's just always kind of been there. It's, it's been this, this thing for me. Around age 12 was when I decided, um, you know, hey, this, this is something I really like and something I want to make a run at. At the time, I was still playing, obviously. And the, the dream was to, you know, to, to play professionally and to, to play in the Premier League and to play for the U.S. national team and all that stuff. Um, you know, eventually my, my lack of talent caught up with me. Um, and, you know, I, I turned to, to coaching and, um, you know, just, just wanting to be around the game and on the field as much as possible. So coaching, you're, you're currently the assistant coach of the Sounders U23, which is playing in the, the USL League Two. And then you're, you're also a coach with the, the Kitsap Alliance FC Tell us a little bit about that project, Kitsap Alliance. I know the word United or Alliance or, or other words are used in the game of football in terms of describing a club or, or a conglomeration of clubs coming together. 
give us a little bit of the story of Kitsap Alliance and how that was formed. Yeah, so there's there's always been um, a, a premier soccer presence out here in Kitsap County, which on which is on the Kitsap Peninsula. So if you, if you think about Washington State, that that part that sticks out on the on the west side, that's the Olympic Peninsula, and then uh, within that, there's Kitsap County, which is on the water nearest Seattle, but it's across the water from Seattle. So to kind of paint a picture, um, and so there's always been premier soccer here, and uh, FC Kitsap was what the club used to be called. Um, you know, as I was growing up way before I moved here. Um, and then at one point it got rebranded as West Sound FC, uh, which is West Puget Sound, basically. So again, just across the water from Seattle. Um, that was kind of the big club. And there was, uh, it was mostly boys that had girls teams, but it was really strong on the boys side. And then there was a, a girls club here. It's called FC Crush. And um, those two clubs merged in 2014 and made Kitsap Alliance FC. At the time, the Kitsap Pumas, we also had a youth program. And, uh, you know, rather than competing for players and resources, the the idea was these three clubs in 2015, what was West Sound Crush and the Kitsap Pumas youth um, all came together to make Kitsap Alliance FC. And that's still standing today. It's, It's the premier youth soccer club in Kitsap County serving, uh, you know, all, all the way up to, to Port Angeles and Squim in that area. Um, and there, there are a lot of select clubs in the area as well, but it's the one premier club here now. How many players are connected to the, the Kitsap Alliance football club? Um, it's not a huge club. I honestly, I don't know the exact number. Um, basically, the idea is that the club provides playing opportunities for four to 18-year-olds in Kitsap, Mason, Jefferson, and Claylam counties, so four counties here. And you'd think, wow, that's a pretty big area, but it's one of the least densely populated areas in this part of the state. So it's not like we have, uh, you know, I coached in Seattle for a couple of years and we would get 150 kids at tryouts in one particular age group here. I mean, if you get 30, then you're doing pretty well. So it's not a huge player pool. Um, we have try to have one team per age group. There's some age groups where it skips because there weren't numbers or whatever the case may be. Um, and we're kind of in the process of trying to build the club up with some um, offerings on the, the lower end in terms of the five to eight year olds, which would then ideally feed into our premier uh, player pool. So we're trying trying to build up the numbers, um, but it's yeah, it's, it's not a huge club. It's a small club, and honestly, I kind of, I, I like that. It's it's got a got a good community intimate feel to it. So the the club itself, obviously, every club, no matter where you are, whether you are in an, an urban population, you're in a suburban setup, or maybe like what you're dealing with, it's a little bit more rural in terms of you know geography and and demographics and population size and so you have to kind of make some adjustments overall how what level does the club play at there in washington or is it with u.s youth through washington soccer association is it is it through u.s club what kind of league is there a league play that you play in is it tournaments what what is what are the player experiences in terms of competitions yeah, so we, we do summer tournaments um, like every club around here, and it's just depending on the level of the particular team um, that decide, they decide for themselves which tournaments they, they go to and, and stuff like that. Um, for league play, we are in the RCL, the Regional Club League, which is uh, under Russian Youth Soccer, so U.S. Youth. It's the, the top league, uh, state league in Washington, so it's not, uh, it's not BA or ECNL. Um, but it's, it's the, the state league here. So with, with your kids and, and they're kind of playing, what are you hearing them talk about in terms of their aspirations? Are they wanting to play for the Sounders? Are they wanting to play, kind of follow Yedlin over to England and play in the Premier League? When they're out there kicking that ball around and they're they're playing in these tournaments and they're playing – uh, in, in the in the leagues or tr- coming to training, what what are the what are the conversations of the players that you're hearing? 
You know, it's it's funny out here because it's a small club in kind of an isolated area. A lot of players don't know what they can do. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm coaching the U19 boys team this year, and um, I'm, I'm in the process of meeting with every player individually just to ask them, what do you what do you want to get out of this season? What do you want to get out of your experience, even in youth soccer? What, what's the next step for you? And a lot of them are saying, you know, I want to play in college. Um, I think I don't really know how to get there. I've had, you know, a couple of players say I want to chase the game as far as I can, whether that's low level professionally or college or, or whatever. Um, but there isn't this concrete idea, this concrete notion of what players can do, which uh, is something that I, I, I want to change coming over here personally. And um, I want to show them that, you know, players from, from this area can make it and they can do good things in the game. The pathway might be different. It's not like, uh, you know, you're playing for the Sounders Academy and you go straight to a D1 school or sign a homegrown contract, but it can be done. And, um, you know, it, players here can can make a can make an impact in, in the game in their lives if that's something that they really want to do so the player pathway in the u.s is a is a crazy uh non-universal pathway it you know depending on where you live what clubs are around uh, what mls franchises are close by etc i mean you could have any number of different pathways to try to find your way uh, to whatever level it is that you're trying to get to for your players there and in dealing with some of the, the, I, I say limitations, but there it, it's really more of just the, the unique experiences of where they're growing up and maybe they're not directly under the lights of a, of a Seattle Sounders Academy set up and field. What, what is a pathway like? Can you describe that? What, what a pathway would be like for one of these players at Kitsap Alliance trying to make their way into, say, an MLS-type academy or into a, a scholarship in, 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 in a player's going, hey, I, I would like to do that. What, what what would their pathway look like coming out of there? Yeah, it's like you say, it's hard to define, and, and everybody's journey will look a little bit different. But for us, a lot of guys will end up uh, and girls will end up playing at a community college. Uh, again, it's a smaller area; it's harder to get recruited. You know, if we do have teams that are good enough to go to the bigger tournaments, we, you know, will quite often come up against clubs from huge population bases, and and we'll struggle to compete with them. Um, so there's a lot of community colleges in Washington that do a good job of, of helping players move on. So a lot of our, our players end up there um, after two years or one year, however long it takes. You know, the, the idea is moving on to a four-year school, uh, Division One or Division Two, And then from there, hopefully, um, if, if they have the talent and the ability to, to move up. Now, I think it, it'll continue to change as obviously the, the professional game continues to grow here. Now we have USL League One and there's all these new leagues and new clubs and coming in and everybody's uh trying trying to grab their their slice of the pie so um yeah i feel like the opportunities will continue to increase for players who really want to to play at a higher level and who really can uh, think that they can they can do it um you know it's like you say it's, it's non-linear it's not really there's not one defined pathway and for me that's i always stress that to the players that um, everybody's journey is going to be a, a little bit different and uh, you know, as mine was, you know, I, I grew up playing youth soccer in Alaska, moved down here to play for one of the community colleges in Washington, ended up staying here to go to a four-year school. Um, and then that was, you know, that was basically the end of my, my journey because, like I said, I, I wasn't really that good as a player. So uh, I ended up going into the coaching side of things. But, um, you know, it, it is uh, – there are possibilities there for, for players. It's just about – being open to what it might be. It might not be, you know, what you think it's going to be or what you think it should be, but um, the pathway does exist if, if you want to want to seek it out. So you grew up in Alaska before you came down to Seattle. What was that like? What was that like trying to become a soccer player next to the Eskimos? Uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. You know, we, we played a couple months out of the year outside. Um, most of it was indoor. I spent the winters, um, traveling to these different showcase tournaments down in the, we call it the lower 48, but the, you know, the, the main, the U S mainland, I guess. 
um, trying to get seen by college coaches and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's very different. You know, you, you end up, like I said, I played a lot of indoor soccer and uh, my favorite thing was when I was in high school, I played in the local men's league indoor, which was in a middle school gym. So it was a sizable gym, but we picked off the walls. So the, the bleachers were in play. The ball never left play basically. So, you know, it would bounce off the walls and it was a, it was a crazy sort of game where you, know, you have to be very aware of your surroundings. You got to get the ball off your foot quickly. And, um, you know, I was, 15, 16 years old playing with men who, um, you know, in Alaska, we, we make them a bit tougher, it seems like. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. So you come down, you come down to Washington, you go to college and you stay, you decide to stay. What, what are you seeing in that area, the Northwest? And I had the privilege of, of coming through there, uh, with, uh, the election last year with Eric when all the, as we kind of traveled around meeting with state associations and came through Seattle and Portland and able to speak to the state associations, kind of hear from them specifically kind of what they're seeing and what they're trying to do. What, what is your observation in terms of what you see in the landscape up there in the Northwest Seattle and Portland with MLS obviously gets some some notoriety in terms of the the passionate fans and drawing fans to matches but outside of that what 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 other things would you describe in terms of the soccer um, experience culture etc up there in the northwest the biggest thing for me is you know like you say the the mls clubs get a lot of attention and and they do get a lot of fans and yeah, it's a, it's good. I mean, it's a good thing. And obviously it's, it's, it's good to have that kind of example, but it really seems like outside of that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who want their, they want their share in terms of usually, I mean, and usually it means they want their money, right? There's a lot of youth clubs in the area, um, in Washington in general, um, can't really speak to in Oregon and, and the other states around here, because I don't know it quite as well. But in Washington, there's a lot of clubs. There's not really a, a quality um, as much as there should be. It's, it's very watered down, it feels like, because there's so many clubs around. That, you know, when I was growing up, I know down in, in the Seattle area, there were two, two or three big clubs that the players kind of flocked to and um, made uh kind of made this area really the teams that came from here i mean i remember playing against some teams from the seattle area that were unreal uh growing up and now we don't have that because there are six i would say bigger clubs in washington state six or seven and then there's a bunch of others who are kind of mid-level in terms of their size and they're trying to get to that higher level and then there's even more smaller clubs that um you know everybody's kind of holding on to their share as best they can and trying to take from others so that they can move up the ladder. And um, the result is kind of a watered down, um, just a lot of times it's just mediocre soccer that you see there. There'll be some good teams and obviously there's good coaches here, but um, it's, if you go to a field on any given weekend day, uh, what you're likely to see is not quite that quality level, unless you're going to like a, a DA game or, um, you know, one of the, you happen to go to one of the really good uh, teams at the big clubs that, that end up drawing players from around the area. So um, I hate, I hate to, to answer your question with a negative, but for me, that's always the prevailing feeling is that everybody's trying to grab what they can and they don't really care about the larger consequence, it seems like. And, and everybody's kind of afraid that if, everything consolidated a bit and and there was this real kind of notion of either this is a quality club with quality teams and it's one of the bigger ones that they would be left out whether it's coaches um, players administrators whoever so um it's it just kind of ends up being the way that the way that my experience sort of feels here for sure so as a coach um i want to i want to kind of just dig into some of your personal philosophies what what are you when you're out there and you're working with these kids or you're working with the the sounders u23 group the u19 group with kitsap alliance what what's what's the philosophy that in in which you see the game what are you trying to 
to create on the field in terms of, of a team identity, playing philosophy, et cetera? Yeah, the U23s is not really my – I mean, I do have input into it, but obviously I'm the assistant coach, so I, I can't really lay claim to our playing style or our philosophy or anything like that. I'm, I'm there as, you know, a supportive um, – kind of a, in a supportive role for our head coach and you know I'm, I'm happy to do it he's Jason Prenelow is our head coach he, he coached me when I was at Highline for two years at community college and uh, he's a great guy so like I said that, that falls mostly on him for, for my youth teams and, and when I was the head coach of the Pumas um, that I can speak a little bit more to I mean my my philosophy is kind of defined on um the, the notions of, of juego de posición or positional play from, from Spanish, it's a bit more Spanish school of thought. Um, it's, you know, using the full fields, uh, positioning to create passing lanes, uh, the, the different kinds of superiority, whether it's numerical, positional, um, you know, the creating superiority on the field, um, understanding and utilizing the concept of the free man, um, moving the ball to, you know, affect, move and unbalance the opponent, not just passing the ball to pass. I know people talk about tiki taka and all that, but um, it's, you know, there's a purpose to, to why you move the ball. Um, you know, the position, possession and pressure, you don't win the ball or when you don't have the ball, the idea is to, to win it back as quickly as possible. Um, and then, you know, the, kind of a, a structured game based on positional concepts more than it is about, uh, you know, uh, possession or keeping the ball or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's the positioning and, and the positional play will give shape to the rest of the game in that regard. So I, I'm a, I'm a real big fan of that playing philosophy. When, uh, when I was coaching, that was the same type of of philosophy that that i tried to employ as well big pep guardiola fan um and barcelona is my favorite club in the world and so you know that spanish philosophy that that spanish mentality and seeing the way their teams play and then watching what i also enjoy doing and and i'm sure you've done this as well is, is to watch some of these younger teams in Spain, you know, like some of these Barca Academy teams and watch the, the culture being shaped in front of your eyes. You know, they, they, they're not, they're not in the first team yet, but you're watching them play and they might be 12, they might be 14, they might be 15, but it's like, that's why they all look like that when they get to the first team like that, they, they, they're learning to play this way, you know, from, from a younger age and, and, it, it becomes, you know, a, a part of their everyday process with the game and, 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 and absorbing that from a cultural standpoint. When you're trying to communicate that to these players and you're trying to teach them, hey, this is how we want to play. This is our philosophy, you know, the, the free man, the third man runs, the, the, you know, positioning to open up spaces for, you know, your teammates, et cetera how receptive are the players? Cause I know a lot of times that there's excuses given by coaches. Well, you know, the, they, they're, they're too young to understand X, Y, or Z. And I've always been like, what are you talking about? I mean, they're, they're learning harder stuff than this in school. Um, you know, so what has your experience been in terms of kind of imparting your knowledge and your wisdom and your philosophy into your players and how receptive have they been in in kind of receiving that education and, and adopting that and understanding that that this is this is how we're going to play as as a team. The players love it. I mean, um, they the one thing I will say is that kids, and I've done this with kids as young as you know you you eight really. I mean, you can get the very basic concepts in. And, you know, I had a U10 team a couple of years ago that was really good, and they, by the end of the season, they were playing teams off the field, uh, and it was it was excellent. Kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Kids are smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. Um, they they can pick things up quickly. They're they're sponges, right? If if you know how to teach it, and you know how to get the concept across. I mean, you don't go zero to one hundred um, in two seconds. They will get it, and and they're smart enough that they will grasp it. The 
the problem is when people watch, they'll watch Man City play and they'll go, okay, my team is going to do that. Like, all right, you know, pump the brakes for a second here because you have a, a U14 team in a rural area of the U.S. Uh, and you're asking them to play like some of the most expensive players in the world to train every day and this is their life, right? So that's where the disconnect comes in. It can be done. The players love it. I mean, the players players want to have the ball and this is all based on having the ball and, and what you do with with the ball um, and how to get the ball when you don't have it. So that the players take to it, I think, pretty much right away. Um, the, the, the biggest word for me in youth soccer is process. It's a process. It doesn't, you don't magically become a team that plays that way. It's um, you start from nothing and you have to build it up layer by layer. Uh, ideally from the time that they first touch a ball to when they're done playing soccer, whether it's, uh, you know, U19, college, whatever it is. Um, and that's the one thing where the, another big, big part where the disconnect comes in is that there's no youth club around here, certainly, and, and very few, if any, in the country that, that have a unified sort of thought to how this process should play out from the very first team, the youngest team to the very oldest team. Um, and that's, that's a big part of the problem. But for me, you gauge where your team starts and, and you, you make them aware of the fact that it is a process and there will be struggles and you will have to work hard. But honestly, I think the players embrace that notion of it too. Um, it's not, you make a mistake, I'm going to scream at you. It's you make a mistake, let's figure out where that mistake comes from. What part of the process are we in? How do we fix it? And when we do fix it, how does it fit into the, the bigger picture of what we're trying to, to achieve? And they really do buy into that. And a big part of it is getting that buy-in from the players and making them realize that, look, I'm the coach, but this is on you as much or more than it is on, on me. Because on, on a game day, I stand on the side, right? I can, I can give instructions. I can kind of coach and do whatever, but you're the ones on the field. You're the ones on the ball. You're the ones making the decisions. So you're the ones who have to be able to, to make this happen. It's not, uh, and like I said, all, all these, these aspects, both treating the kids um, like they have a brain, which they do, um, treating them as equal members in this process. And not, it's not a top-down approach. It's not me being a dictator. Um, and then ultimately, um, when they start to grasp it and they start to have success and, and you start to move through the different steps of the process, seeing, um, watching them do that and, and seeing how, how they enjoy it, I think, is that, that's, that's big for me. So one of the things that you you just mentioned that I, I want to kind of go back to is the fact that here in the U.S. there are very few, if any, clubs that have a playing philosophy from the time that the kids come into the club all the way to to you know, playing into the first team, that there's an identity that is, you know, going all the way through the entire club from a playing philosophy side, culture, etc. How do we get that? How do we get to a place where we have that kind of culture and that kind of identity being reproduced at U8, U10, U12, U14 on up? Uh, it starts from, this is where the top-down approach does, does apply. It starts from the top. You have to get somebody in charge of, of the club who understands the philosophy, understands the, the structure, how to implement it, uh, what it looks like, and understands how to impart that at the different ages from, from U10 or wherever your club starts all the way through U19 or first team or wherever you're at. Um, that's where it starts. And, um, being educated, those those higher level club directors and you know the the people involved and in, on the technical side, that's where it starts. Is them being understanding it and knowing how to communicate it and um, being educated enough in in the process and in the style and philosophy that they can impart it and bring in the right coaches and and not just bring in the right coaches but also educate the coaches uh, because it's not. Um, not something that is is necessarily easy to grasp especially in our culture where we don't really grow up with it um but that's where it starts for me is from the very top so our clubs around the country many because of the segmentation that we've seen within u.s soccer from a federation level so we've you know we've parked the the youth soccer 
space over here. We have the you know adult amateur space over here. We put the professional space over here. And, and, and we just, you know, we see this kind of segmentation play out over and over again. And, and what it, what I have noticed in this is this, there's a, a big learning gap that has formed as a result of the segmentation and, and the segregation between all of these different, what I call them silos, you know, and it kind of, we've got youth over here and, and, and adult and professional, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a big proponent of generational clubs because I look at how do clubs operate around the world and generally that they are producing players for a first team. And if you're going to produce players for a first team, it's natural that you want to prepare players from, from the earliest ages that you, you get them to, to be ready and prepared to play for your first team. Should you make it to that level with your talent? And I see a big gap in that here in the States. I see, you know, a lot of adult amateur teams that play and they're like single teams. They have, they have no base beneath them, no youth set up, et cetera. And, you know, they're, they're, they're basically kind of like a, a glorified beer league softball team that, you know, it's running more professional than just playing in your local beer league softball league. But you're, you know, you, you don't really have the essence of a club. You know, you have the essence of a team, but you don't really have a club uh, culture that's been built. And and I see that generational gap uh, or that lack of having a generational club having having some adverse effects as well with our youth development because it be, it becomes a natural progression if I'm running a club and I have a first team and I want my players to play for that team that we start to figure out, well, how do we want our players to play so when they are 8, 9, 10, 15 years old, they're getting ready and they're learning. And and whether that's, you know, Wego de Posesión or some other type of playing philosophy, whatever we're going to be about with our first team is what we're going to try to figure out how to, to disseminate and teach at our younger levels. And, um, I, you know, I think you're spot on with, with the leadership within the club, even now without changing all of that could still at least up to your highest ages be, be creating scenarios where that education becomes generational, becomes club wide, becomes, um, you know, part of the, of the identity and playing philosophy of the entire club and not just, one team or one coach, etc. When when you look at the players that you see right now around you locally, where you are, and and you see their development on a daily basis, um, when when they're when when they are coming to training and they're playing in matches, what what do you think their potential could be? if it was maximized for individually for them, like, do you think that there are kids in, in your area that could, could play at a much higher level and they just don't know it? Um, and they don't, they don't know to dream that big. Um, or, or are we a country that just doesn't get soccer and only a handful of people are ever going to be able to play at a high level? Uh, in terms of the, the players around me, I, I don't really see if we're talking about the professional game now and we're talking about, like you said, helping players for a first team. I don't see the players around me here as, as really being part of that pathway. Like if, if say Kitsap Alliance had a first team, um, then I think this would be a club that wouldn't be relying so much on, on homegrown talent because honestly, we don't really have high level professional, maybe one or two in a five or 10 year period. It's not like we're churning them out here. Um, I, once you start bringing that in, into the equation, then you start to think about, okay, what team is it, which teams are in which area? If you look at MLS, right? You look at LAFC or the Galaxy, they're in Los Angeles, which you could take a national team out of Southern California that could be to the US. So you're looking at a solid pool of homegrown talent where you can develop players, you can bring them up and you can do that. Uh, you start looking at a Real Salt Lake who's done very well with, with their homegrown talent and who they've brought through, but 
the Salt Lake City area is a much smaller area. There's not as much population, not as many players, not as many high-level players. So now you're looking at, okay, um, are we? what players are we buying? Who are we bringing in from where? So now it'll be club by club. So some clubs have the ability naturally based on where they're located to, to do this. Some clubs will be, um, you know, drawing from a much bigger pool. I think once you start, you know, talking about that, it brings a whole new element into the equation. I think where, where we find the disconnect is, you know, now, now I know the, the training compensation and, and solidarity payments is, is kind of coming to the forefront in the U S if that incentive existed for clubs such as ours, we might, it's hard to say whether we would be incentivized to try to develop more professional players because uh, like I said, the talent pool here isn't quite the same anyway. So um, what you then get into is, you know, that idea of, okay, now can we kind of look to uh, not eliminate necessarily, but at least um, kind of mitigate the whole pay to play um, idea and how much it costs to play club soccer in, in the U S um, but I, I think this, this idea that you have to have a first team that you're developing players for, it, 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 it changes things because then you're looking at, they bring in a new coach, right? So now everybody suddenly has to try to develop players for this coach and, and their, his style, and it might be different than what you were doing before. Ideally, the, it doesn't change as much. You have an idea and, and a coach, if it doesn't, if he doesn't fit that idea, wouldn't get hired by the club. But, um, I mean, clubs change all the time well where they're doing one thing and then suddenly they go this really isn't working for whatever reason and we need to, to make a change so they do um so i think that now you're starting to get into the the business of soccer and you know the first team needs to win games so that's what you're going to be looking for and um oftentimes it's going to mean bringing in the, the best players you can from elsewhere um i think keeping it kind of as, as we have it right now the system you can still you can do this it actually becomes easier to do if you if you're talking just a youth club without anything above it because then you can look at we're going to educate the players and they're going to be able to move on and play in whatever environment that they end up playing in next or they end up if they don't end up moving on then at least they have a, a grounding a basis in in the game so that when they have kids they can teach their kids the game and, and they have this this well-rounded footballing education so um i, I don't know how much having uh like you say those generational clubs i mean even to a certain extent the youth clubs that exist right now they are they are like that because you have u10 through u19 or whatever it is and uh you know it can still be done i think in that model and i think it actually becomes easier because you don't have that pressure of okay we have to develop players for the first team they're trying to win games um we have to you know there's not so much have to have to have to it's we can take our time we can do this the right way we can put this process in place and, and we're not quite as panicked or as rushed as we would be if, if every, every club had that, that overhead, so to speak. So looking at the landscape of American soccer, um, one of the things I've been asking guests as we kind of come to a close here is if you were, if you were in charge of American soccer for a day and you, you could, you know, make one decision one choice unilateral you could do anything you wanted to change to reform to alter whatever uh american soccer what would you look to do in your one day in charge um coaching education would be free and i'm talking like a license b license all the way down coaching education would be free I think if, if you, you educate the coaches, uh, you, you get better coaches that will automatically, not automatically, but it will make it likelier that you will have better players, better educated players, because these coaches, if you're looking at all the clubs and just how massive this country is, every coach has a bigger, much bigger influence on their team and their players than even, um, you know, like the, the Sounders Academy has no influence over my team and my club, but I have a very big influence over the 18 players that I'm in charge of. So even if the Sounders Academy or these higher level coaches, they, they have the best education and the best process, they can bring the best players in. It doesn't really make as much of an impact. If coaching education were free and we could talk about um, 
you know, I think the application process for the, the USSF licenses has, has improved. I think, um, you know, I'm taking the B course right now and the, the level of coach on that course. I haven't taken a U.S. soccer course in, in a few years, but it's, it's, a, it's a high level. I mean, the, the, the people that I'm with, that I was with in Kansas City last week were, they're all very smart people. They know the game. Um, everybody has their different strengths and weaknesses and different, uh, you know, takes on things. And, and as you would imagine with a group of individuals, but um, in general, I thought it was, it was really a worthwhile experience to have that much brain power in one room. Now, if every coach in the country could experience that at their level, whether it's a, a D license, C license, grassroots, whatever it is, I think that would go a long way toward making a big impact in the level of players and the, um, just the level of soccer in general in our country. Well, that, I think that's a great answer. And, and it's, to me, su- such an important part. Uh, if you look at just macroeconomics, you know, you, you tax what you want less of and you incentivize what you want more of. So essentially providing incentives by lowering the costs or the barriers to entry, we can get more education available and more uh, people able to work through that, that licensing pathway, um, you know, helps us raise the quality of our educators, i.e. coaches that are working with these families, working with these kids, these players, and hopefully over time that has a, a generational effect in terms of the, the quality of education, the quality of play, uh, the quality of development that we see within this country that uh, would help improve, you know, the, the opportunities, the development, the environment, etc., for these players um, as they are coming up in the game. So uh, I really appreciate your answer there and, and your insight into all of that. If, I, should if, add, um, I should add that it really only works, this idea, if the quality of education that they're receiving is of a high level. And I think uh, U.S. soccer has made a lot of good strides in that area in terms of improving the quality of their, their coaching education pathway and the quality of the content, the, the way that it's delivered. Um, it's very different now than what it used to be from what I know. I never took a, a license as they call it now but the newbie license is very it's it's some high level stuff and I'm, I'm really enjoying it so if the quality of it is high enough then i think that idea makes a lot of sense obviously if it's if it's poor then it doesn't matter how many coaches you put through it because then they're just going to be learning the incorrect things but um the learning how to how to do it correctly if everybody could then that would make a big difference totally so, Levy, thanks for coming on the show. How can people uh, find you or connect with you uh, through either social media or, or online? Yeah, I'm like I said, I am back on Twitter now. Um, my my handle is the same as it was before. Levy Bird, so L I V I U B I R D. My DMs are open, so anybody can message me. Uh, I'll be on sparingly throughout the summer, probably when I have time. But uh, like I said, I've We've got a lot going on, so um, I will, I will, will I do make an effort to respond to most or all messages as long as they're not, you know, spam or, or whatever. But um, but yeah, I do. Uh, I, I I am available on Twitter. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for giving us uh, your your insight and feedback into to Washington, Northwest, Alaska, the whole gamut of your your personal experience and your insight and uh and into my favorite playing philosophy Wego the possession um we are definitely kindred spirits in that area for for sure um and and again thanks for coming on the show thanks for joining us and good luck uh as you as you head into uh the season here with uh with is it the the u23s that are about to, to kick off yeah, our first game, well, we have a preseason game on the 11th, and then we have our first league game on the 17th, so well, good, starting uh, very soon here. Well, good luck with all of that, and again, thanks for coming on the show. We uh, we look forward to having you on uh, again soon. Yep, thanks for having me.
That was Livy Bird, who uh, joining us on the show. He um, he's he's coaching up there in Washington. If you missed his work a few years ago, you can still find uh, some of that content online that where he was writing for Sports Illustrated. Just has a great mind, a great insight into the game, and a really good understanding of of uh, what the system should look like and and how players and development and coaching and and you hear that when he's talking uh comes out so thanks uh thanks to him for joining the show thanks for for tuning in tomorrow we have eric winalda joining us it'll be a a fun uh fun interview and uh i'm sure there will be a lot of laughter um going back and forth and uh it, it, it will be good to, to catch up with him on the show Thanks for joining us. As always, you can check us out at Daniel Workman on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com forward slash WRKMN. We'll see you again tomorrow.